This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our Rule of Law series with our own Alex Cortez, who brings us today's feature on the story of the Constitution. And once again, with Hillsdale College President Dr. Larry Arn as our guide. On July 4, 1776, the American colonies declared their independence from Great Britain, which practically meant they were declaring war. If you imagine George Washington with his army in 1777, say, pick a year, pick any year in the American Revolution, and most of it was bad for him. Imagine him. He's never run a big army before. They're making war on the most powerful government on earth. They don't know how. There's nobody really with any experience to fight these British guys who know how to run an army, and a lot of them are very talented people. They got wealth, they got establishment, they're old. And yet, they won. And that they'd have yet another terrifying task ahead of them. Perhaps a more daunting task if you could believe it. Creating a country, which meant to them creating a constitution. Well, it's, of course, it's nobody's claiming it's perfect. It's not a perfect document. It's just the best thing of its kind ever. Their constitution would create a limited set of powers given to the federal government and a bill of rights that would ensure that the natural rights of the people could never be violated. In essence, their constitution, led in drafting by James Madison, would establish the rules of the road in America, the rule of law that would both apply to and can be created by all equally. Madison says, we're not gonna do it in the old way. In the old way, here's what you would do. Aristotle writes that the city is made up of the one and the few and the many. And the one is a monarch, maybe. And the few are the aristocrats, maybe. And the many are the democracy, the people. And the fundamental conflict in society, he says, is between the many poor and the few rich. And so the way you make a good government, according to classical political philosophy, is to mix up the powers have an aristocratic house that has some power and have a democratic house that has some power and have a king who has some power and then they cancel each other out. And you have to understand that the people who made the American Revolution had read these old books and they simply refused to place in the American Constitution any power to any privileged class by birth or other station. Madison writes, it is essential to a Republican government that it be derived from the great body of the society, not from an inconsiderable proportion or a favored class. Otherwise, a handful of tyrannical nobles exercising their oppressions might aspire to the rank of Republican and call themselves that. In other words, we are not going to do what was done before. In fact, to some extent, by the way, done in the English constitutional monarchy. We're not gonna pick out some people and call them special and give them special power. But if you think for a minute, that makes the problem worse. 
because now you're going to have a majority and that is to say me on a good day is not a bad fella and me on a bad day is pretty likely to do something wrong and so how are you going to give all of the power to the people and keep them from abusing it and ironically enough their answer after expelling distant british rulers was to create distance madison in the 63rd federalist says that our government is unique because it is the first one in which the sovereign people are excluded entirely from making the operations of the government. What I mean by sovereign is being the source of political authority. In the United States of America, the people are sovereign. We act under our equal and natural right to consent to the government over us. Now, who was sovereign in England? The answer to that is the king in parliament was sovereign. And that meant that the king working through the parliament was the source of British law. And there was a constitution, and he wasn't to violate it, and it was unwritten, but it meant something. But you couldn't say that the ultimate tribunal, Abraham Lincoln liked to call the people as they are organized under the constitution, the highest tribunal. You couldn't say that that was the people in England. And if the king and the parliament were sovereign together, then they were the executive and the legislative branches. And if you think about that for a minute, that means that when the sovereign actually sits down to make a law, that being the highest authority in the land, the sovereign can do whatever it wants. And in our country, that never happens. Compared to Athens, the way it worked in Athens was the free citizens, who were a minority of all the citizens, less than a third, they all had the power to vote. They would gather in the amphitheater on the Parthenon, and they would have an assembly, and they would vote. But they were forever turbulent, right? Because once they got in the room there, they'd have a big argument, and they could vote just about whatever they wanted to, because they were the sovereign, and they were right there meeting at that moment. And they were forever doing crazy things like uh, sending off an expedition by sea to go conquer some colony. And then the next week, they'd hear a different speech and they'd change their mind and they'd send off another group to go stop the first group. Very changeable, right? But also unlimited because the sovereign was meeting to run the government. And in our country, the majority gets that the majority of our representatives in Congress. Health will be in order. Except, they never just get to sit down and do it. Because think what happens. Aren't you frustrated by politics sometimes? When I was younger especially, I'd be given to think, you know, if I could just have a week <laughs> to fix this, you know, stupid what they're doing. You know, and you custom and carry on. But in our country, you don't get to do it. And think what gets checked by that. Because first of all, all of the people who are in the government know that the ultimate authority is out there watching them. And they can chuck them out. Isn't that good? 
that means they got a fear, right? Where's the king when he met? You know, what he kept saying back to the colonies is, I'm the king, as was my father before me and as will be my son after me. And it doesn't make any difference what you think about that. Nobody gets to say that. And so the government is checked. Consent, except now put in representation. They work for us. But the second thing that is checked is us. Because we can't do anything right now, today. Isn't that interesting? That means that, you know, almost every American, if you just look at the polls, would like to make very large changes to the government. It's not true that they all want to change it in the same direction, but they can't really do anything right now. It takes years to do anything. And what's that about? It just means that we have to wait for elections to act, but think for a minute, also in between the elections, we're encouraged to talk. The original scheme was you can talk all the time, you're able to act only certain times, which if you think about it, kind of boils down to the idea, think before you act, talk it through. And when we come back, more from Dr. Larry Orne, the story of the Constitution of the United States. It doesn't get better than this, folks. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the U.S. Constitution and with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. And here he is talking about the benefits of our representative government that the Constitution created. The second thing that happens because of representation is that things can get bigger. You know, if you've got the political system of Athens and the people have to get together in the legislature and vote, it means they can't live very far away from each other. Also, by the way, it means they can't vote very often because they've got to be making a living. What are they going to do? All sit in the legislature all the time. So it becomes possible for the country to get bigger if it's a representative country. And you know, there was a debate at the time of the revolution about how big it should be, but the people who won the argument about the Constitution, the Federalist Party. They argued very well that the states themselves were already pretty big. They were thinking of a big country, and you can have a big country, and if you have a big country, there'll be, Madison makes this point, a lot of interests. They'll multiply. There'll be more than one or two. There'll be more than a hundred. There'll be more than a thousand. And because of that, it'll be harder for any one of them to dominate. And you think they're just encouraging us by this mechanism of bigness and representation for us to have a whole bunch of factions and them all to cancel each other out. And that's partly true. But it's not the whole story. Because Madison also says, when you're debating over a big expanse, like if uh, you and your four friends that you've had all your life get together and you've had a conflict with another three friends or even enemies and they're not there and you get to talking about them and it's just you you know probably you'll go pretty far and say some stuff that's more than what you mean 
But if you have to announce it out in public to a whole bunch of people you don't know, you might be more careful. Madison writes in the 10th Federalist where he's writing about how you can multiply the interest and it'll be hard for any one of them to dominate. He also says, where there is a consciousness of unjust or dishonorable purposes, communication is always checked by distrust in proportion to the number whose concurrence is necessary. In other words, if you've got to try to persuade a lot of people, you're going to be careful what you say. And that's going to make the public discourse better. The plan of the Constitution is drawing on the various aspects of human nature. Wish for honesty, understanding that we have a common connection with each other, and each of us will do better if we all do better. They're trying to find a way to draw on all of those things to propagate for the first time in history, for a long time, a system of self-government. And that necessarily means that this representative system must also account for that other little aspect of human nature called self-interest. Madison writes that these people are going to get elected to these jobs and they're ambitious and they're going to want to take over as much of the government as they can and they're going to have to work with the others and the others are ambitious too and they're going to be in a kind of a struggle that's going to tend to bring them together. That, too, advance their own ambitions, they have to pass legislation. And to pass legislation, they have to work with these others who have their own ambitions. Ambition, he writes, must be made to counteract ambition. It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of the government. But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external or internal controls on the government would be needed. And that, it seems to me, is a sign of what they're after here, which is not just the lowest common denominator with these things. It is that, by the way. It is that, too. Self-interest. If I'll read you something from Abraham Lincoln, and, and I, I want you to understand that the action of self-interest can be a very powerful force for good. Lincoln is arguing against slavery once, and he says, uh, free labor argues that as the author of man, that's capitalized author, he means God, the author of man makes every individual with one head and one pair of hands it was probably intended that the head and the hand should cooperate as friends, and that that particular head should direct and control that particular pair of hands. As each man has one mouth to be fed and one pair of hands to furnish food, it was probably intended that that particular pair of hands should feed that particular mouth, that each head is the natural guardian, director, and protector of the hands and mouth inseparably connected with it, and that being so, every head should be cultivated and improved by whatever will add to its capacity for performing its charge. Now that's an interesting point, right? Because in the first part of that quote, what he means to say is, the best person to feed me if I'm hungry is me, right? But the second thing he says is, we're gonna to try to build a society where everybody gets a chance to do that. A chance to pursue their self-interest. 
only restricted by the rule of law, a few basic laws to ensure that we don't harm one another as we go about pursuing our own self-interest. And as we do so, we will coincidentally be helping each other more so than any other system in human history. The Butcher, in seeking to take care of himself or his family, makes the best use of his labor, providing meat for folks like bakers, and with his reward, uses it to purchase things that he's not so good at, such as the labor of the baker, which enables the baker to buy his meat or a car to get to work faster and bake more. In Adam Smith's famous example, minus the car, that wasn't around then. It took decades more of self-interest to get there. We talked a lot about the self now, and a limited government lets the self go about its day. But at the same time, you better watch out. It ain't no limp government. The government of the United States is the government that has won the two greatest wars in human history. And if you count the Civil War, also one of them, let's say three of the biggest five ever. It can act, but it is encouraged to be deliberative while it acts. In conclusion, two things that Dr. Arne believes we must watch out for as we live in the legacy of the Constitution. The first, he shows through a story of him being a new and naive university president and at one of the only places that refuses to take the federal government's money. Young and green and stupid. And I thought, uh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read Title IV of the Higher Education Act because that's the thing that we're giving up several million dollars a year not to have to abide by. I'd like to know what I get for not having the money. And so I called our lawyer. We, I don't think we still have him. I, I hope not. But uh, <laughs> for years and years, we kept a lobbyist in town whose job was to keep the government from giving us any money. It cost 30 or 40 grand a year to, get, to make that happen. And I called him up and I said, uh, you know, I want you to send me Title IV of the Higher Education Act if that is in fact the part that we are escaping by not taking all this dough. And he said, no use, no use in my sending it. And I said, why not? And he said, well, you won't be able to read it. And I said, uh, well, you know, I'm a reasonably intelligent man. Maybe I can read it. What are you, a lawyer? And, and he said, no, he said, I can't read it either. We keep a specialist to read it. And she's actually the only person I ever met who can read it. Now. Madison says that if the laws are so voluminous or changeable that you can't read them, then it doesn't matter if they're made by the right process. That there really can't be a rule of law if you can't reasonably understand the law. Dr. Arne couldn't understand them, and how many Americans have time to read a healthcare law that's over 2,700 pages? Or how about our representatives who passed it? It's believed that not a single one of them read the entirety of this law that they made. When it was challenged in the Supreme Court, justices with very different judicial philosophies were quite upset 
when it was suggested to them that they go through the whole law and decide which parts were constitutional. Justice Stephen Breyer said, so you propose that we spend a year reading all this? And the late Justice Scalia erupted, of course, with what happened to the Eighth Amendment. That's the one prohibiting cruel and unusual punishment. Now, here's the second thing we should watch out for, according to Dr. Arne. The government is so large now. And, you know, there's just thousands of things going on right this minute, you know. It's, we're probably worse governed now significantly than we were when this interview started. It, how can you keep up with it? And that means that when it's so big, and so big in relation to the rest of the society. I think the gross domestic product of the United States is 15 trillion, and I think state, local, and federal spending is 6.7 trillion. Half, I think, would be seven and a half trillion. So we're 800 billion away. If it gets past that seven and a half, it just means in money terms, the government is larger than the rest of the society. How can the rest of the society watch it? And there you have it, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. We're continuing our Rule of Law series, the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear the Rule of Law series and all that we do. This is Our American Stories. <laughs> 